I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you have a very wealthy relative that has passed. Sometime after that, you are notified in the mail from the estate attorney that you've been listed as an heir in the estate. You are to be at his office on such a day, and that's when the last will and testament will be read. And so that day comes and you go. Turns out it's just you and the attorney. And the reading of the last will and testament begins. Quickly into that last will and testament, you discover you are the sole heir. You are the sole beneficiary of a massive fortune. Your relative has left behind for you the most opulent mansions in various countries. And those mansions are filled with heirlooms and one-of-a-kind items. The walls of the mansion have priceless artwork on them. That relative has left behind an exquisite jewelry collection. And in addition to all of that material wealth, they have left you a sum of cash that you could not spend in many lifetimes. And the reading of the will continues. And then the attorney reaches the point where he says, there appears to be a condition here. There appears to be some sort of exception, some sort of requirement that you have to meet. There's a stipulation in the will that says all of this becomes yours when you die. Let me say something to you. I don't know if you could find a better definition for an empty victory than that. When the Holy Spirit began to communicate that to my heart, I thought, Lord, that's ridiculous. He said, is it? And here's what he began to say. He said, Jesus died and he also left us a fortune. He is the sweet Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who draws us to the Father. But here is the interesting parallel. In order to receive our promised eternal inheritance, we also had to die. Not die daily, die once. Jesus didn't die daily, Jesus died once, and we died once, and we died in Christ. We see this truth of dying in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. The Bible says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if there were words to ever take and lock up in your heart, it would be those words right there. It says, anyone that has died, have you died in Christ? Let me just ask that question. Have you died in Christ? Then he says in these words here, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, you've been set free from the power of sin. You've been set free from the penalty of sin. He said, you have been set free from sin. And it says, now if we died with Christ, 
We believe we will also live with him. In other words, we co-rule, we co-reign, and we are co-heirs with Christ. Gets me excited. With that foundation in place, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the power of an endless life. And what I want you to see through the message this morning is this. There is liberty, there is life, and there is power in our Savior's last will and testament. And here's the beauty of it. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be changed. It cannot be modified. Why? Because it's a finished work. So often when we write emails and write letters, we don't in email so much do the PS anymore, which means postscript. We just think of something and we'll just write it in. But in the day when you wrote letters, you had no place to go insert it, so you had to write PS. There are no PSs with God. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wrote it right the first time and he wrote it upon our hearts. Man has a fascination with power, especially boys. A fascination with power. That's why little kids love these superheroes so much. We have a fascination with power. And man has gotten pretty smart. He has learned how to harness. He has learned how to extract power from the elements God has given us like wind and the sun and fire and water. He has learned how to extract the power from those things. Probably one of the most powerful forces that we have on earth would be considered nuclear power. But here's the thing about nuclear power. As powerful as nuclear power is, nuclear power can never, ever bring life. Only the power of God can bring liberty and life. That's because God is the source of liberty. And hear me closely, he is the author of life. It's where life originates. He is the origin. He is the nucleus of that. God is the source of liberty. And he's the source and the author of life. We see these truths at work in the narrative of the beggar that is healed at the temple gate called beautiful. When he encounters the endless life working in the apostle Peter and the apostle John, we see the story in Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. What a great story. It says one day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. And there's an exclamation point to that, as though he said it in a way to get his attention. And it did. So the Bible says, so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Now hold on just a second here. Here is Peter and John they're doing what they do at three o'clock in the afternoon. They are going to the temple to pray. I mean, the Bible clearly says that. And they encounter a beggar, begging for money. And so often in life, we walk by opportunities because we don't know how to handle them. But I love what Peter said. 
Peter said, look at us. Now, it's an interesting thing to say, but the truth of the matter is, this man, all he had gotten used to looking in was the little cup that he was rattling. They had very low self-esteem, beggars. They didn't want to make eye contact with you. All they would do is shake their cup, the coins in their cups, and say stuff like, alms, alms, poor, needy, help. That's all they would do. He was looking in his cup. And that's why Peter said, look at us. I'm telling you this morning, if you want to see demonstrative change in the way you see Christ, sometimes it has everything to do what we are looking at. Peter and John nailed it when they said, look at us. Do you think they looked any more special than anybody else that was walking in there? Come on, Brother Gary, you think they had like a little glory cloud around them? No, they looked just as common as anybody else going into the temple to pray. He said, look at us. So the man gave his attention to them, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taken him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. So here's what Peter says, silver and gold, I do not have. In other words, what he was saying is perishable things cannot buy you out of the condition you're in. There's a greater power so many times in life, we chase things that we think can buy us out of certain things. But Peter said, listen, silver and gold do not have the ability to buy you out of the mindset and the situation that you're in. But I love, he didn't stop there. He said, but what I do have, I give you. And he reached deep down in his bag and he didn't pull out silver and gold. He pulled out the name. He said, what I do have, I give you. He said, the name of Jesus Christ. And he was saying, friend, it is in that name that you find liberty. It's in that name that you find life. It's in that name that you find power. I have a fascination with the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I do. I happen to love that name. You could put me in a very crowded store, and if someone said Jesus, man, I'd just be like, what? Listen, you can call my name, Mark, 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 and I might not even hear of that, but you say Jesus. Oh, what? Ah, the fascination with that name. And Peter and John walked with Jesus. They were familiar with his ways. They were familiar with his heart. And so he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't beat around the bush. He pulls out what he knows will make a difference. The only thing that will get you from rattling that cup, the only thing that will bring true and lasting change in your life is that name. Because in that name is liberty and life and power. And he said, it's the name of Jesus Christ. He's from Nazareth. And I love it. All he says is walk. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes I think I get way too wordy. And you almost talk your way out of situations like that. They just got right to the point. Once again, he said, Jesus, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped his feet and began to walk. Then he went in with them into the temple courts, 
walking, and we used to sing that song, walking and leaping and praising God. This version says walking and jumping and praising God. Here is a man that's excited. He's really happy because he's realized he has just tapped into something or something has just tapped into him and there's a sense of life. There's a sense of liberty. There's a sense of power, something he has never done before. He is walking and leaping and praising God. He's no longer looking into a cup. He's looking into a Savior's heart. And then it says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What an amazing story. There's so much more in there. Several years ago, I had an encounter that was very similar to this. A moment in time when I was able to dispense liberty and life and power. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I was driving on a Saturday morning and I was going somewhere to speak. It was early in the morning just before eight o'clock. And as I was meditating on what I was going to be speaking about, I was going to be talking about the love of God and God kind of encounters and the grace of God and these awesome attributes of the Lord. And as I began to meditate on what I was going to be speaking about, I said to Papa, I said, Daddy, I have so many encounters with you, so many awesome things that I've seen you do. Which one of those stories do you want me to share this morning? And there were a number of them going through my head. And no more than I began to pray like that, I began to enter this very large city, much larger than Kenosha. And up ahead, I could see cars driving around something going into the other lane of traffic. And I thought, what are they doing? And as I got closer, I saw a man and a woman standing in the road. And I thought, oh, they're driving around them. Why are they standing in the road? And then I could see something laying in the road. I thought, well, their pet must have got ran over. And as I got closer, I realized it was a person in the middle of the road. I stopped my car about 15 or 20 feet in front of those three, and I put my emergency brake on, and I stepped out of that car with absolute boldness. And I walked up to the man and the woman, and they were crying. The woman on the ground was moving, but she was moaning. And I looked at the man, I said, who is this woman? And he began to cry, and he said, that's my mama. He said, today's her birthday. I know it's early in the morning, but she's drunk. She's so drunk, we can't get her up. I looked at the man, and I said, pick her up. He got under her and the lady helped him and picked mama up and stood her right in front of me. I stepped in front of her and I put one hand on each side of her head. Brother, I wish I had a manual for these kind of things, but I don't. If I would have, I'd have said, what do you do for a woman laying in the road when they get her up? There was no manual, so I did what I thought I needed to do, which was pray in tongues. And I began to pray in tongues out loud for two or three minutes. I was oblivious to everything that was going on. I know they were driving around us. And I began to pray for about two or three minutes. 
And when I opened my eyes, the only word that came to my mind was Jesus. And the second I said, Jesus, that woman said, Jesus. She was shaking under the power of God. And so was the man behind her, her son, shaking under the power of God, trembling, crying. I said, Jesus. She said, Jesus. I said, forgive me of my sin. She said, forgive me of my sin. I didn't ask her to follow my lead. She was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I said, come into my heart. She said, come into my heart. I am not embellishing this story. It happened exactly the way I said it happened. I watched a woman be born again in an instant because the liberty of God and the life of God and the power of God said, we're not driving around this one. You do that, that woman will be shaking her bottle the rest of her life. You're not doing that. I looked at the woman and I said, ma'am, I said, you will never touch alcohol again as long as you live. I looked at her son and I said, did you see what happened to your mama just now? Trembling, he said, I felt it. You see, he was probably praying the prayer too. Instantly changed in a moment because the liberty of God was made available and the life of God was available and the power of God was made available. You say, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The woman and her son came into contact with the power of an endless life. It wasn't my power. It was Jesus's power. He alone is the source of our power and the author of our lives. He alone. I have no power apart from Christ. So this man, this beggar who was always laid at the gate beautiful, suddenly is walking and leaping and praising God. And guess what? He doesn't want to let go of Peter and John. When I was done with those folks in the street, I looked at him and I said, now take your mama home, she'll be fine. And they all walked off arm in arm together. And it's what this guy did too. We pick up the rest of the story in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? You know, I'm glad we're moving into a day and time, an era where this stuff is not going to surprise us. I'm not saying that we won't be amazed at what God's doing, but we won't be shocked. When I got back in the car and drove away from that lady, I drove away and I just said, I went like this in my car. I was like, I said, Daddy, what just happened there? And he began to minister to me about it. And guess what? <laughs> I didn't have to look any further from my story for that meeting. It had manifested on the way there. So he said, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? It's a good question, isn't it? Why do we ever think that it's by our own power and it's by our own godliness that we hold ourselves together? 
It's not by your power, it's by his. It's not by your godliness, it's by his. You ain't got any godliness apart from him. It's by his power and by his godliness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. That is Barabbas, of course. Look what it says there now. You killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. I mean, Peter just does not mix words, does he? He said, you're the ones who killed the author of life. And then he says, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now listen, I don't want to deny that we don't face things in life that are rough and tough and hard to deal with. But I want you to get those two words in your heart this morning, the words, but God. But God. So when you are facing a health crisis, you can say, but God. See, if all you look at is the health crisis, it will have you looking in a cup, shaking it all the time. When people face marriage issues, but God. When people face financial issues, I want these words to rise in your heart, but God. Listen, it doesn't get any rougher than killing the author of life. And Peter says, listen, let's just deal with this right up front. I'm going in here to pray. But I got to tell you right out of the gate here, you killed the author of life. <laughs> but he, I can almost hear this little, but God. But God raised him from the dead. He said, we are witnesses of this. You see, friends, the crippled beggar didn't need a hand out. He needed a hand up. And only the Spirit of God can discern that in your hearts. Who really needs the hand out and who needs the hand up? See, had they have given him just a hand out, he would have been left in that state of being. They would not have had the opportunity to minister to him the way they ministered to him. He didn't need a hand out. He needed a hand up. He received the right hand from Peter, and he also received the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. The drunk woman that I encountered, her greatest need was not a way up, her greatest need was a way out and a way in. And she found it that day because liberty and life and power manifested. Both the beggar at the gate beautiful and the woman on Main Street received the power of an endless life. This all came to them through the power of our resurrected Christ, the author of life. Now, the Greek word behind this word power is dunamis. Dunamis. And although it means things like wonder-working power and miracle power, oh, see, that's what we want. We want wonder-working power. My wife and I were talking on the way to church this morning, and we said, oh, we look forward to when miracles are so common and that we are a part of all these miracles and healings. And I said, honey, there's one thing we must never overlook, and that is the miracle of grace. You see, whether you have a bum leg or you have a bum heart, 
I'm telling you, the power of grace, the miracle of grace, the miracle of the Father's unconditional love should never be overlooked. I'll just be honest with you. If I can only have one, I would take the miracle of grace rather than the miracle of physical limbs, to be honest with you. But I love what my wife said. She said, we have them both, don't we? I said, absolutely. We have them both. But the miracle of grace is powerful. So this Greek word has more subtle meanings. Things like ability, things like privilege, things like abundance. Even in John chapter 1, verse 12, when John said, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. That word power right there means the privilege. The privilege, the ability to become sons of God. You see, when I think about power, and I think about the title of this message, the power of an endless life, I'm saying the abundance of an endless life. It's abundant. It is a cornucopia of God's amazing heart, God's grace, the power of an endless life. Now, when you first hear those words, endless and life used together, I'll be honest with you, it sounds like an oxymoron. In case you're not familiar with an oxymoron, it's when you take two words and set them side by side and one contradicts the other. Endless life sounds like an oxymoron. It would be like if I said controlled chaos. I've heard that before. Controlled chaos. Well, friends, let me tell you, if it's chaos, that means it's out of control. You can't have controlled chaos. It's one or the other. Jumbo shrimp is another one. It is an oxymoron. Icy hot is another one. It's an oxymoron. And when you say that we need law and grace for salvation, I'm telling you that is a spiritual oxymoron. We don't need both. We need grace. If you want the law and can live by the law and, and never fail, then go for it. Great. Let me know how that works for you. So when we hear these words, endless and life spoken together, I understand how they ring like that. And that's because, I'll tell you why, because all of our life's experience, all of our life's training teaches us at least one thing, and that is that every living thing dies. Am I right? I don't care if we're talking about people, we're talking about pets, or we're talking about plants. Every living thing dies. But the prophet Isaiah said, I have an exception. I've got an exception. We find that exception in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. He said, the grass withers and the flowers fall. But he said, but the word of our God endures forever. 700 years after the ink dried from Isaiah's pen, the Apostle Peter wrote his letters. And when he wrote his letters, he reached all the way back. He reached back into the biblical archives and he borrowed the words from the prophet Isaiah and he embellished them by injecting into them a new covenant truth, something Isaiah couldn't see, that brings the hope of an endless life for every new creation in Christ. Here's what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, 
or defect. All right. Oh, there's so much here. There's so much yummy stuff in this right here. So Peter says it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Peter is still holding on, still clinging tight to that motif that he used even on the beggar. When the first thing the beggar asked for was money, he said it's not with silver or gold. But he said, I'm going to write about that later, and I'm going to tell you one of the most awesome truths about the new covenant. He said, I'm going to carry that over, and I'm going to tell you that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. See, there's a word that we don't use very often, redeemed. But let me tell you what it means. It means to buy back. It means to buy back. Oh, I've said it before, but I'll never forget it. Growing up, we were so poor. And I would watch my daddy pawn things. He knew where all the pawn shops were at. And he would take something from our home and just to put bread and milk on the table, he would take some rare coins or he would take a radio or whatever. If he got real desperate, he'd pawn his guitar. He loved to play the guitar, so he didn't pawn that right away. But there were times he would go to the pawn shop and then when he got paid, he'd have to go back to the pawn shop. And here's the weird thing. You'd have to buy back what's already yours. Well, friends, isn't that what God did? That's what Daddy did. You see, back in the garden, Satan walked up to Adam and said, how'd you like to dance today? And Adam said, sure. And he waltzed him right out of the garden. And Daddy said, wait a minute now. He belongs to me. You put him in a pawn shop. He belongs to me. I've got a plan. I can buy him back. And 4,000 years later, I'll send Christ. I'll send him to buy man back out of slavery. That's what that word means when it says to redeem someone. It literally means to buy them out of slavery. You see, we belong to God. We are his. He's the one made the dirt that man was fashioned out of. Now, if someone else made the dirt or owned the dirt, then they could say, well, he's part mine. No, no, God owned everything. God made everything. God's the one who fashioned man. God's the one who put breath in man. God owned man completely. And man gave up that right and said, take me to the pawn shop. But God has always had a plan to buy us back. He says, here's what you redeem me from. He said, you redeem me from the empty way of life. Now see, when you first hear those words, nothing really jumps out. If you ask people on the street, they would have no idea what you were talking about. They think it was drugs or something else. He said, you redeem me from the empty way of life. What is the empty way of life? Well, I think we can find our first clue in, first of all, discovering where did it come from? He says in those scriptures, it was handed down to you from your ancestors. Okay, so your ancestors are the ones who gave you the empty way of life. What was it? It was simply the law. That is what got passed down. And God said, Jesus is going to redeem you from the empty way of life because following the law is empty as it can get. And he says, how did you get redeemed? He said, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And it says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now, we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I want us to stay in context here. Let's stay in chapter 1. 
But let's just move up three verses and look at verses 23, 24, and 25. Remember, we've been bought out of the empty way of life, handed down to us by our ancestors by the precious blood of Christ. He says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And here's the words that he borrowed from Isaiah. He said, for all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. He says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's exactly what Isaiah said. He says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. In other words, he's saying it's a seed that within it contains an endless life. That is the kind of seed that lives on the inside of you. That is the kind of seed that is growing on the inside of you. And he says it came through the living and enduring word. Now, let me ask you a question here. What is the word? What's he talking about? He said it came through the living and enduring word. Well, the word is Christ. John made that very clear when he opened his book, when he said in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's what he says. In him was life. What kind of life are we talking about? We're talking about an endless life. He doesn't have any other kind of life. It's an eternal life. It's an endless life. It's a perpetual life. And he says, you've been born again of a seed that cannot perish. That seed lives on the inside of you. There's nothing you can do. Doctors can't cut it out. You can't flush it out. You can't lose it. It's an imperishable seed. And he said he came through the living, enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Do you see what Peter did? He brought life. He brought clarity to what Isaiah said about death. He did this by reminding us that even when we face death, even when our bodies are perishing, there remains on the inside of us, an imperishable seed. I'm telling you, up until a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I had a fear of death. And if you go back 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, that fear was much more intense. And then the Holy Spirit began to work that out of me. I'm telling you right now, I can lay right down next to it and go to sleep now. I've got that much rest. Why? Because there's an imperishable seed that's on the inside of me, growing in grace, growing in his love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 again. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, the word of the Lord endures forever. In the book of Galatians, we find the promise of the seed, the power of the seed, the purity of the seed, the permanency of the seed, and most of all, the person of the seed. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, you'll see them all right there. The Apostle Paul said, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. When he's saying that no one can set aside or add to a human covenant or a will once it's been drafted. Once the will is drafted, unless you change it, he said it's permanent. That is the permanency of the seed. He drafted up one last will and testament, and he said, I don't need to change it ever again. That is the permanency of the seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Not only do we have the permanency of the seed, but we have the person of the seed. Who is that person? It says it right there. Christ. He is the person of the seed. I can trust that seed, can't I? You can trust that seed, can't you? You can trust that seed to remain faithful even when you're not faithful. That seed is permanent. It abides forever. Jesus said, I've come to abide. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. In other words, what he's saying is I made a covenant with Abraham. And then 430 years later, I made a covenant with Moses. It was called the Mosaic Covenant. It was a bunch of laws and rules and regulations, 613 Jewish laws, including the Ten Commandments. And he said, the fact that I did that does not change my covenant with Abraham. Why? Because look at those words there. It says, that covenant was established by God. We know that anything that's established by God has the power of God working in it. So we not only have the permanency of the seed and the person of the seed, but we have the power of the seed. Why? Because it's been established by God. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace that is the purity of the seed. There is nothing more pure than God's grace and God's love. That is the purest seed there is. It's a seed that comes to you by grace. That way you can't add something to it and wreck it and defile it. It's the purest seed there is. He said it's grace. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham Look at those words, through a promise. That is the promise of the seed. It makes me happy when I think about that the seed is doing the work. The seed is the one creating the life. The seed is the one that's permanent because I change. The seed is the one that creates the power. The seed is the one that creates the purity. The seed is the one that establishes the promise. What's beautiful about these scriptures is that they're all tied to covenant. Galatians chapter 3 there, it's all tied to covenant. The reason that excites me is because for so many years, I was under this impression that it was up to me to maintain my whole portfolio in Christ. Turns out it's not. It's tied to covenant, a covenant that cannot be modified a covenant that cannot be annulled, a covenant that cannot be changed. It is the covenant that God made with Jesus at the cross. 
Not with you, but with Jesus. And then we got put in Jesus and we become the beneficiaries of that. But God made that covenant with his son on the cross and God will never break that covenant with his son Jesus, ever. We have become the beneficiaries, the heirs of this new covenant through Jesus' blood, amen? The power of an endless life is bigger than a concept and it's larger than a philosophy. The words come straight from the Bible. They are found in the book of the Bible that names the believer as the beneficiary. These words are found in the book that opens the seal of Jesus' last will and testament and gives us our inheritance. That book, by the way, is Hebrews. We begin in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. So he begins to set this picture in place, this comparison, this type and shadow. And he says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, whether this is a type and shadow of Jesus or it's the pre-incarnate Christ, I've heard it said both ways, it doesn't matter. I want to ask you the question, who is worthy of wearing that title, King of Righteousness? Who is worthy of that? That's Jesus, isn't it? Who is worthy of wearing that banner of King of Peace? Christ. My Jesus is the one who's worthy of that. So, we talk about this man Melchizedek when chapter 7 opens, and then let's jump up to verses 11 through 16. Here's what he says. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? Very important question. Let's get Aaron out of the way. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. Let's move him out of the way for a moment here because he's under the Levitical priesthood. And let's talk about this other man, Melchizedek, the one that's considered the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Why was there still need for someone to come that looked like Melchizedek? Continue reading. It says, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Friends, we see that even in our White House. When new presidents come in, the laws begin to change. The drapery begins to change. The decor begins to change. Everything's changed. Why? Because there's been a change in priesthood, essentially. He says, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. That's why he's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. That he descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, Moses never talked about a priest would come out of Judah. It was always a Levitical priesthood. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, I'm just saying, I'm just hinting, he said it will be more clear if another priest, kind of like Melchizedek, appears. Remember, righteousness and peace. One who has become a priest 
I love this, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an endless life. That is where the inspiration from this message came from, straight out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 16. He said, the man that's going to show up is not going to be all about the law. i tell you what he's going to look like. He's going to bring the power with him so that you can live an endless life. Otherwise, you'll just wear yourself out. The law did not have the power to give us an endless life. Had no ability to do that. No ability. The word endless comes from the Greek word akatalatos. It means indissoluble, unbreakable, permanent, or eternal. That is the Greek definition of the word endless. So when it says that he gave us the power of an endless life, he is literally saying he gave us the power of an unbreakable life, of a permanent life, of an eternal life, akatalatos. Let's continue where we were at, talking about Melchizedek, as we move into verses 17 through 28. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The formula regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Friends, I want to tell you something. If there were some words you'd want to write on your heart, it'd be these words right here. Please remember these words. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. Now we think it does. The law made nothing perfect and no one perfect, okay? The law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. As he is, so are we in this world. And I was reminded that we are called priests as well in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He is a priest forever, and we are kings and priests. Valerie preached about it last week. We are kings and priests. And he says, because of this oath, what oath? That he's a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, which is what they had to do back then. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Why? Because he says he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
In other words, he's saying, you'll never be put in a pawn shop ever again. There'll be no more begging at the gate beautiful. There are no conditions to my last will and testament. There is no controlled chaos in me, and there is no more need for law mixed with grace. And there is no disappointment in Christ. It says, for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. His sacrifice was for us. His perfection becomes our perfection. His holiness is our holiness. His father is our father and his endless life is our endless life. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. I love these. These are some of my favorite scriptures. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. These are the high priests from the Levitical priesthood. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are holy. Fasten your attention to those words. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are made holy. You say, well, I don't always feel holy and I don't always act holy at all times. How do I know I'm holy? Because it seems to be like that's the condition. If we're holy, then that one sacrifice works. Okay, so how do I make myself more holy? Well, we are in verse 14 as that wonderful truth rolls out. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are holy. So let's just back up a few verses and look at verses 8 through 10, the verses that preceded these verses. And here's what it says. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at the words, once for all. Your actions are not what make you holy. I would encourage good actions. I really would. I would encourage us to look like Christ. I really would. But I'm telling you, based on the scriptures, not just this one alone, but based on the scriptures, it is Jesus that made us holy. Is that what the word says right there? It says right there, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And that man, oh man, he said once for all. That means I'm not just holy today and then tomorrow I got to deal with something. No, I'm holy every day. Why is that so liberating? Why is that so full of life? And why is that so full of power? Because I'm not dealing with condemnation. I'm not dealing with fear. I'm not dealing with a checklist to see if I'm holy, I'm holy. You are holy. You are a royal priesthood. He says, and holy nation, a peculiar people. 
<laughs> Why are we peculiar? Oh, because we are here there one day and we're over here the next. We are just peculiar people. We get a truth established in our heart and then we seem to move away from that truth. I've come by today to tell you he has made us holy through Jesus's body on the tree, through Jesus's body on the cross once for all. As we begin our descent, let's take a look at the framework of Jesus's last will and testament and the fulfillment thereof. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 18. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things, I love that. He came as high priest of the good things. He didn't come to judge us. John 3, 17 says that, for God did not send his son into the world to judge us, to condemn us. He sent his son in the world to save us, to give us liberty, to give us life, to give us power, to give us good things. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. What tabernacle do you think that is? <laughs> if it's not made with human hands, what else is there left? That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, who is that eternal redemption for? Remember the word redemption, it comes from the word redeemed, which means to buy you back. It means to buy you out of slavery. It means to get you out of the pawn shop. It means to be able to take you back into the garden where Jesus always meant us to live, in the garden, eating from the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, I want to give you good things, not just material things, but I want good things to set up in your heart so that when you open your mouth, all that can come out is what's stored up inside, and that's good things. And it says he gave us eternal redemption. He's not coming back to buy us again, friends. He already bought us. See, you take something to a pawn shop and you pawn it for $10. You might have to pay $15 or $20 to get it back. You might have to pay twice as much to get it back. Seems a little steep on interest, but think about this. A man committed high treason against God broke God's laws when he was told him, don't eat from that tree. And man became wicked and vile. And God said, here's the value, the real value I have on you. I'll pay more than what you perceive you're worth. Friends, I don't know. You can't put a number on Jesus' blood. You can't put a number on his sacrifice, not a monetary number, but it gives you some sort of clue. It gives you some sort of hint how valuable we were to Christ. How valuable we were to the Father that he would give us eternal redemption. How? Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by Christ's blood. He says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant or a new testament. That's what Jesus said when he gave his disciples the meal. He said, this is the new testament. This is the new covenant in my blood. 
Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is only in force when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. I think we know that about a will, don't we? It takes effect. It comes out of the bank vault when someone dies. Well, friends, Jesus did die. Jesus did die, and he prophesied his death in front of his disciples in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 33. He said, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, and dies. What was he saying there? He was saying, except the testator of the will falls into the ground and dies. He said, it remains only a single seed. But he said, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. This is the climax. This is the reason Christ came. He is referring to himself. He is the kernel of wheat that is about to fall into the ground and die. And he says, Father, glorify your name. It's the same name that brings liberty. He says, glorify and release that liberty. Glorify and release that life, Daddy. Glorify and release that power. Then a voice came from heaven just that fast. And it said, I have glorified it. The Father doesn't need forever to keep thinking about this. He's been thinking about it for an eternity. It's time to buy man back. He said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. And then he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, I want you to make note that, again, that the word men is italicized. If you look in your Bible, you'll find that that word is italicized. That means it doesn't exist in the original manuscripts. Okay? And so when the translators were putting together the different versions of the Bible... They just thought, well, we've got to fill that in with something because it just doesn't make sense to say, and, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. So he must be talking about men. I don't know how many times I used this scripture in my early years to say, man, if you go lift up the name of Jesus, it says right there, he's going to draw all men. And believe me, he does. But that's not what the scripture is saying. He does. He honors what we do. When he's talking about being lifted up, first of all, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. But look at the context of what he is saying when he says he's going to draw something to himself. He says, 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, literally it's saying, will draw all judgment to myself. That's exactly what he did. He drew my judgment. He extracted it like man wanting to extract and harness the energy from the sun and from the wind. Jesus said, I'll extract the judgment right out of you and I'll deposit on the inside of you liberty and life and a power that you can't find anywhere else. Amen. He says, I'm going to take away the conditions. I'm going to take away the stipulations. I'm going to take away all the reasons my father could be angry with you. I'm going to take them away. I'm going to draw that judgment to me so you won't have to be judged. Now, back to the estate attorney in the reading of your loved one's last will and testament. Do you remember that there was a condition in order to receive the inheritance you had to die. The attorney says, I think I've got you. You see, I have the death certificate of the testator, but before you can inherit this fortune, the stipulation says you have to die too. I'll also need to see your death certificate. But if you're dead, how can you receive the inheritance? So he's really got him here, doesn't he? He said, you got to be dead, but you got to be alive to collect it. Do you have such a certificate with you that supports both death and life? And you say, I sure do. There it is. There's my death certificate. You see, it's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I can collect my inheritance because I've died, but I'm alive at the same time. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Faith in what? Faith in His once for all sacrifice. Faith that a kernel of wheat fell in the ground and died. Faith that He drew all my judgment to Him. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. He had to love me to draw that out of me. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Witnessed by Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. On August 7th of 1995, I was crucified with Christ. He died and I died in Him. All the conditions of his last will and testament have been met by him and by myself. The darling of heaven was willing to give me all the treasures of heaven, but most of all, he has given me the power of an endless life. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. You and I were not redeemed with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. There are no empty victories in Christ, only good things. In Him there is liberty. In Him there is life. 
In him there is power. His last will and testament cannot be annulled. It cannot be modified. And it's in force because the testator died. That person is Jesus Christ. Our promised eternal inheritance has no conditions. It has no stipulations, no disappointments once we come to Christ. That's because by his wants for all sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. He alone is the source of all the power we have. He alone is the author of our lives. Yes, it's true that people are like grass. And yes, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And yes, it's true that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but it's also true that the word of the Lord endures forever. Get those words in your heart, but God, whenever you face any situation in life, but God, he declared that if our inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. The Bible tells us if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, friends, 2,000 years ago, a kernel of wheat named Jesus Christ fell into the ground and died. He died so that he could draw all judgment to himself and release in us the new covenant reality, the new covenant truth that the power of his endless life lives in me forever. Amen. Father, I want to just praise you and thank you for this word today. I want to thank you that the reality of these scriptures, the reality of your heart ringing true in my heart draws my attention away from me and to Christ. I'm no longer looking in a beggar's cup, Daddy. I am just like Jesus, full of power. I'm a priest made after his likeness. I thank you, Father, that his body on the tree is what gives me my holiness. His righteousness is given to me as a gift. I want to thank you, Father, that I have an energy on the inside of me that not only brings liberty, life, and power, but it releases it, Daddy, everywhere we go, so that when we have close encounters of the God kind, times when we're moving along, driving along, riding along, walking along, and all of a sudden, something manifests. That's what happened to Peter. That's what happened to John. When they seemed like they were just going to a casual prayer meeting, they changed a man's life for eternity. And Daddy, I'm so thankful I'm so thankful that there's no end to the power. It's dunamis. It's the miracle power of God. But daddy, help us to always see that it is the ability. It is the privilege. And it is the abundance of power. It's the abundance of our God that causes us to rule and reign and to rise up and say the power of his endless life abides in me forever. I am co-ruler, co-reigner, and co-heirs with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.